Hello, and welcome to the 5 Buy, your favorite source for rapid-fire board game reviews, and a proud part of the Inside Voices Network. This episode, we start with Lindsay's thoughts on Lucidity's Six-Sided Nightmares. Mason has some opinions on Majesty for the Realm. I get some help talking about the T-Dragon Society card game. Sarah maps out her thoughts on Lost Cities. And last but certainly not least, Catherine takes her time to tell us about Zulkin. And please listen to the end as we have a network announcement. Hello, it's Lindsay here, and this episode I'm going to talk about venturing alone into the world of Lucidity Six-Sided Nightmares, the dice management push-your-luck game designed by Shannon Kelly and published by Foxtel Games, with artwork by Stephanie Gustafsson, Tyler Johnson and William Webb. I'm talking about the solo option only, and the duration averages 15 to 30 minutes. This is a fairly new acquisition and I usually like to wait a little longer before discussing on the show. However, because it was fairly straightforward to learn and games are so short, I have played one hell of a lot in the past 10 days and now I'm dying to talk about it. Lucidity is mostly a dice game where you have a dreamer mat and a bogeyman mat. You populate your bogeyman mat with spooks. This is a number of randomly drawn dice and then you choose your dreamer level which determines how many dice you blind draw from the bag. You choose two, put the rest back in the bag and roll your remaining dice. Depending on their colour and the symbol, you place them on your dreamer mat in the designated space and each type has to be resolved. In the solo game you will win once you have 15 power symbols on the power track or when you have no more spooks on your bogeyman card. The condition to this is you must have two of each colour on the power track. Removing spooks is tricky as you have to spend one power from your track and re-roll spooks of that colour and it's only power symbols that can go back in the bag. You will lose the game if at any point your hunt row is filled to capacity or when you reawaken a nightmare which is the most challenging part. When a coloured dream row is filled it awakens a nightmare which is no big deal really except thereafter you cannot put any dice of that nightmare's colour back in the bag and if you feel the awoken nightmare again you will lose. For a short solo game there's lots to think about and manage and it becomes really tough when the nightmares awaken. I've definitely lost more times than I've won and I've masochistically enjoyed losing and trying again. I think for a solo game it hits the right spots. It becomes a personal challenge to finally beat it and feel that sense of victory when I do and the push of luck aspect has me wincing like please please no what have I done which is fun but because it is short duration it's not too disheartening when I lose for the umpteenth time. A key factor I look for when I play solo games is that they have to have a focus. I never like that feeling of performing actions and going through the motions until it's over, which I have experienced when playing solo games before. And I find that this usually happens when a game adds on a solo variant, which feels like an afterthought, and it's just like the multiplayer game but less engaging and not too fun as a result. Lucidity has clearly had time and attention put into it and has adapted the game to work as a solo. This unfortunately means that the cool abilities of the Awakened Nightmare cards don't play a part in the solo and only activated in the multiplayer game. For fun, I did try a game using them anyway. Whilst it did mean I could do more of the dice, it didn't make total sense, which is why I guess it wasn't included in the final game. I really, really would have liked to see an extra set of Nightmare cards with abilities especially for the solo game, and I low-key implore the designer to consider it. Not just for me, but because there is an exponential growth in gamers going solo, which I can only see as a good thing to be honest. However, the solo comes with its own set of challenges which the multiplayer doesn't have. As I mentioned, when the nightmares awaken it becomes a race against time not to let them reawaken again and it really puts the heat on and on occasion has happy pushing my luck in vain attempt to delay my inevitable failure. I think that some people might not like that luck does play a part in the solo game but it does make each game different which amps up the replayability because you never know what coloured spooks will end up on your bogeyman cards and what you're going to roll and what you're going to draw from the dice bag. And I 
find that the luck factor does balance quite nicely though because there are ways you can attempt to manage your luck if you get smart about it. Before each turn you choose how deeply you want to dream which varies how many dice you draw from the bag so this can really help when the nightmares reawaken but it also means you have a tougher time gaining power and removing spooks. I like that there are different levels. I had very different games when playing with each Pokemon card. The Lord of the Depths is the most toughest to beat, but each has its extra difficulty level if you want to use it. I would say that the rule book is a tad sketchy in places. It left a few things open to interpretation with some ambiguity, which is never good when learning a game. In fact, I actually played my first few games incorrectly, and there's not a lot to the rule book. And I like to think I'm pretty good at learning rules, but a few times I had to investigate board game geek threads and double check the how to play video. But that said, it's a good game that I've enjoyed and it shouldn't be a deciding factor, but it's nonetheless something I wanted to point out. I love the artwork. It's horrible and aptly nightmarish without being too gruesome and it just oozes cool, but like my kind of cool, not necessarily everybody's kind of cool. The dice, whilst very small and cute, I have a feeling could possibly end up becoming faded due to continuous handling and I'm a little worried about the cards becoming warped and faded and I'm not usually a sleeving kind of person, but I guess now is a better time than any to finally do that. Lastly I think it's a subtle game, it's fairly nuanced and admittedly it took a few games for me to say oh okay I get it. So I think it's a grower. So whereas I started out a little confused I ended up thinking it was marvellous and it's just one that you have to expect not to click immediately but to give a chance to because when it does click it's a really good game. I'm looking forward to playing with the group and I believe there's even a child friendly version which is a nice idea but for now I'm going to continue enjoying it as a solo game. If you want to see and hear more from me, you can visit my Instagram and YouTube where I'm Shiny Happy Meeples, like my Facebook page, Shiny Happy Meeples, pop on my website, shinyhappymeeplesco.com, or follow me on Twitter, we're on capital S, capital H, capital M, Meeples, capital C, Co. Bye for now. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about Majesty for the Realm. You may not know Mark Andre's name, but I know you know who he is. His 2014 game Splendor absolutely blew up, got nominated for a ton of awards, including the Spiel de Jar, and has easily sold over 100,000 copies. His new game, Majesty for the Realm, which I will only be referring to heretofore as Majesty because it's an embarrassingly dumb title translation and I don't like saying it, is a very fast, very tight little card game that I am absolutely in love with. We've played it about 20 times this month and I don't see it leaving our collection. Majesty is a number of good ideas rolled together. It's an engine builder, it's a card drafter, it's an area controller, it's a tableau builder. There's just a touch of player interaction and a tiny taste to take that, but you can defend yourself and it's short enough that no one's feelings are really going to get hurt. You're picking a person card from the center row, sort of like Century Spice Road, then adding it to the quote, kingdom, end quote, more on the silly and irrelevant theme later. Players all have the same eight location cards face up in front of them. Each location can only have one kind of person under it. The knight goes to the barracks, the brewer to the brewery, the witch to the cottage, etc, etc. Uh, when you take one of these people from the card row and add them to their building, you trigger the effect on the building. The mill, for example, gives you two points for every miller you have there. So the second miller you get gives you four points, the third miller gives you six points, and so on. Most of the card effects are cumulative, so the more you do the same thing, the more that thing is worth. You're only playing to 12 people cards, so Majesty goes very, very quickly. It's not a race because everyone gets 12 cards, but the pace is so rapid that after you've played a few times, it gives me sort of the same feelings of tension I get from race games. Majesty is a game where no individual decision is complex, but the cumulative total of your decisions make or break you. There's certainly a good amount of randomization in the card row, but since it affects all players equally, I wouldn't say that Majesty is particularly luck-dependent. 
Like most good Euro-style games, the randomness is all from the input, not the output. It's not, you made a decision, now roll these dice to see what happens. It's, these cards are randomized, now make a decision based on what's available to you. All the location cards are double-sided in Majesty, and we played about 15 games with the A-side before flipping them over and trying the B-sides. It's basically a totally different game. Different card interactions, different outcomes, different balances. Mixing up the fronts and backs adds some element of chaos, possibly making one location incredibly powerful, but it's a clever way that Andre has built in variety without adding components or asking you to learn any new rules or new mechanics. There's a lot of set collection and majorities in Majesty. Like, you get a variety bonus for the locations that are occupied, so you probably want to try and get people at all seven locations. Those 49 points are not an insubstantial portion of my regular score. You're trying for majority in each location. Some locations are worth more points than others, depending on which side of the cards you're using. You're not going to get all the majorities. Maybe you can in a multiplayer game? Probably not. I've only played it at two-player, so I couldn't say. But it's another layer of focus, and another path that Andre gives players to win. On the subject of conflict in Majesty, Megan and I do not enjoy games where an opponent can take away or smash up all of your stuff, but the implementation of attacking and defending here is just light enough that we really tucked in after a couple of plays. Much like the military threat in Seven Wonders Duel, attacking your opponent is only one of the many options you can take, and it acts more as a mutual deterrent for us. That's one small part of all the things going on in this little game that make it really well suited for multiple different playstyles. Component quality in Majesty is weirdly all over the place. The original European publisher, Hansum Gluck, is one of my favorites. You would know them from Carcassonne, Marco Polo, Stone Age, and a ton of others. They've been around for decades. Majesty comes in their standard medium-small Euro box. Think Kark or San Juan. For some bizarre reason, though, the box is high, high gloss instead of linen finish, which I don't really get. Maybe that's just the English-language Z-Man printing? I don't know. You keep score with a set of high-quality resin chips, like smaller versions of the chips in Splendor. They feel great, and they speed the game along because you're getting points almost every turn. Using a score sheet or a track would probably slow the game down significantly, so the chips are great. But the cards in Majesty are very, very crappy. Low-quality stock, not well-finished, and mine were slightly warped. This is weird to me considering it's a card game, and HIG normally uses very good card stock. I sleeved mine, of course, and would recommend that you do too. There's supposedly rumors of an expansion coming out for this game at Essen that would include new cards and additional scoring chips. I guess that's cool or whatever. Uh, they'll fit in the box just fine, though not in the very specific insert, which will probably be annoying. But what I'd really like to see is a ton of community-generated location cards for this game. Majesty is a nearly infinitely expandable system, and I hope it becomes popular enough that end-users want to create and share their own content for it. The art from illustrator on Hidesyke is competently done, but honestly kind of blah. I do understand why they chose the art direction they did, because it's dead on if their goal is to sell into the European family game market, which it obviously is. The theming here is totally irrelevant, though. It's nominally about a medieval village or something, but it could be about anything, or nothing at all for that matter. Majesty is functionally an abstract game. Because the theme is a medieval European village, everyone is white, of course. Fortunately, none of them is sexy, which I appreciate, but damn it, it's 2018 and we just deserve better. I'm so, so, so bored with these lazy tropes. Do better, people. Now about the price. Retail on this is $40 US, and it seems to be available online for mostly around $35. If you're just looking at the price to components, it's a little bit steep, even though the resin money chips are really cool and nice. But if I'm looking at a cost per play over the life of the game, it's very, very low. Like, incredibly low. Like, it's an incredibly good value and you should buy it. So who should buy Majesty? People who want another quick weeknight game that they can play repeatedly. People who want to explore multiple paths to victory. People who like set collecting and engine building. And people who don't mind ignoring a bland theme to get at the great game underneath. I give Majesty, for the realm... 7 out of 7 alternate subtitles that you're welcome to submit to me for our contest. The prize is my admiration. 
I'm Mason Weaver, and you can find me on Twitter at Discount Compost. The T-Dragon Society card game is a new game from Renegade Game Studios. Designed by Stephen Ellis and Tyler Tinsley, this game is an introductory deck builder based off of a webcomic by Kate O'Neill, with additional art by Josh T. McDowell. As T-Dragon Society is rated for 10+, I thought it would be an excellent opportunity for my daughter to learn this game and to teach it to me. So, here she is to help share her opinion on the game with us. What is the T-Dragon Society card game about? It's about taking care of tiny little T-Dragons. Each dragon starts with its own growth and mischief cards. Growth cards are the things that the dragon needs, such as feeding, grooming, sleeping, and entertaining. While mischief cards, like Bite, Picky, Bored, and Grumpy, result in losing growth cards. Sounds interesting. And can you give us a quick overview of how the game plays? So on growth cards are a certain amount of points. You can use these points to buy cards from the market. Then these cards can help you later on. Some cards have more points on them that you can use for buying even more cards, while others can protect you. For example, if you draw a bite, that results in losing a grooming, but if you have gloves, then you don't have to lose that grooming. That sounds good. So, as a basic deck builder, how do you win the T-Dragon Society card game? The easiest way to win is by using memory cards. You use growth points to buy these cards just like you do with market cards. Some of these cards help you by getting you more cards or more points, and others can just be annoying, but all of them are worth a lot of points at the end of the game. So the theme was a big reason why I ordered this game for us, and I've since ordered the book and given it to you to read. Do you feel that the game overall represents the book? Yes, it does involve the storyline, but I think it does a good job at saying, hey, you've got a tea dragon, you need to take care of it, you want to prevent this, you want to get that. I also love how the creator used pictures from the book on the cards and how those pictures show people that look different and have different abilities and backgrounds. And as of the dragons, in the dragon profile section of the book, it sort of ties into their abilities. Like Jasmine has abilities with grooming, which shows Jasmine tea dragons are some of the most careful about grooming Ruibos Entertainment, they're one of the few tea dragons that enjoy playing. Chamomile is the most relaxed and sleepy dragon. And Ginseng loves to eat a lot. So I gave you Tea Dragon Society the game the day it arrived and asked you to learn the game and see if you could teach it to me as the game is rated for 10 plus just to see you know, if it is age appropriate. How was that learning experience? I really thought that it was not that difficult to learn. There were some rules that didn't exactly make sense to me. But once I got through those rules, I figured it out pretty quickly. I really enjoyed how along with a written instruction booklet, like most board games had, 
They also had a little comic book explaining how to play. I thought that was really cool. In our personal experience playing the game, I found it a little much for your younger brother, who's seven, and maybe a tad long. What are your thoughts on this? So, for a two-player game, it took us about 40 minutes to play, which I agree is sort of long, but I feel like it really gets a lot into that. And for the age... Honestly, I'd say nine and up would be a good age, and I agree it was a little too much for our seven-year-old brother. Overall, I really enjoyed the game, despite, you know, the length and stuff. I thought it was a really good introductory to deck building. I thought the art was great. Really kind of helps bring in the narrative, helps bring in maybe those preteens who might be interested in the uh, dragons or the webcomic. What were your final thoughts on the game? I really, really enjoyed it. And I would recommend it to anyone who likes dragons and tea and deck building. I really enjoyed it a lot. Okay, so that's the Tea Dragon Society card game. If you have any further questions or comments about this game or anything else, you're welcome to reach me on Twitter, at MyGrizzly, and thank you for helping me review this game. You're welcome! I play a lot of two-player games. According to my stats app, 37% of my plays are with two, and to be honest, I expected that number to be higher. Good two-player games are valuable to me, and Lost Cities by Reiner Knizia is one of the best I own. Originally published in 1999 by Cosmos, Lost Cities is a card game with few components, just a deck of cards and a small board that isn't strictly necessary, few rules, the rulebook is just a small pamphlet, and a whole lot of game. Lost Cities is so easy to learn and teach that even though I've owned it for years and taught it multiple times, I never read the rulebook until I sat down to write this review. The first time I played, a friend taught me, and that was enough. I never needed the rulebook. Lost Cities is a deck of cards with five suits, and the main goal is to build runs in those suits. Gameplay is so simple, the word simple seems inadequate. On each turn, you play a card, then draw a card. That's it. You do have a couple of options. You can either play to a run or to a discard pile, and you can either draw from the deck or from a discard pile. But essentially, the game is play a card, draw a card. Runs go from low to high, and each suit is numbered from 2 to 10. Once you've played a card, you can't play a card with a lower face value in the same suit. If you play the red 5, for example, you can't play the red 2, 3, or 4. This can make the beginning of a game of Lost Cities pretty tense. And if your starting hand has nothing but 8s, 9s, and 10s, it could be very tense. You don't want to play those high-value cards early on and lock yourself out of a suit, but you also can't discard them too early, when your opponent can just scoop them out of the discard pile and add them to her hand. As I learned from the friend who taught me Lost Cities, the first part of every game is about finding safe discards while you figure out what you're going to do. A safe discard being a card that your opponent can't play because they've already played a higher value card in the same suit. The only even mildly complex rules in Lost Cities are in the scoring. You score the face value of each card you play, but you take a 20 point penalty for beginning the run. So if you've played no blue cards, that's no score. But once you play a single blue card, your score is minus 20 plus the value of the blue card. You need at least 20 points worth of blue cards to break even. There are special cards called handshakes, because they have a picture of a handshake on them. Handshakes have to be played first before any number cards in a suit, 
and they double your score in that suit, but also double the starting penalty. So there's a risk to playing them. There's a constant back and forth in Lost Cities that is so satisfying. Watching what your opponent is playing and discarding, trying to figure out which suit they're collecting and which you should be collecting, either to build your own runs or to prevent them from using. Deciding whether to take a small loss in a suit or discard something your opponent can use. Near the end of the game, you'll also be watching to see if they're drawing cards they don't need from the discard pile. That's a sign that they're holding a good hand and are trying to extend the game, which ends when the draw deck runs out, to give themselves time to play all those good cards. At that point, you might try to end the game more quickly, even if you also need time to play the cards in your hand, if you suspect what they're holding is more valuable than what you've got. All that from a game whose rules boil down to play one, draw one. To me, an elegant game has few, simple rules, is easy to learn, well-balanced, and provides strategic depth. By that definition, well, Lost Cities isn't as elegant as, say, Go, but it's elegant enough, its picture should be in the dictionary definition of elegant, right next to Go. There's a well-designed app for Lost Cities that lets you play anytime, with different opponents and challenges. The app is unfortunately iOS only. I wish they would release it for Android, but there don't seem to be any current plans to do so, so for now, it's only for iPhone owners. My only criticism of Lost Cities is that the game seems difficult for a colorblind person to play. Color is the main identifier of the suits, and some of the colors seem pretty similar. I hope that in a future edition, they'll add icons or something to make the game more accessible. I do want to commend Lost Cities for changes in the 2015 US edition that make the rulebook more inclusive. I own the 1999 edition, which uses male pronouns throughout, but the most recent rulebook mainly addresses the player as you, occasionally using he or she. It's a small change that makes a big difference to players like me who care about inclusion. So thanks, Cosmos. Kudos to you. Lost Cities has a theme about explorers and expeditions and handshakes, but really, it's an abstract game, with less theme than, say, chess. I'm not even sure what handshakes have to do with expeditions, and really, who cares? Lost Cities is quick enough to play almost any time, accessible to novices, and enjoyable for experienced gamers. It is a must-have for anyone who plays two-player games. My name is Sarah, and when I'm not collecting handshakes from my expeditions, because you need that, apparently. You can find me on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. It is one of my great pleasures to create a 5 by segment to share with you the story of one of the century's fabulous games. Dissecting a game down to one story to be told in five minutes is always a significant challenge. Today, it is the Everest of challenges because the story I want to tell is about Zolkin, the Mayan calendar a game first published at Essen in 2012 by CGE, designed by Daniel Tashini and Simone Luciani, with art by Milan Vavron. So what do I share in these mere five minutes? Do I tell you my personal tale of how this game took me from serious gamer to gamer fanatic? Do I describe how this game started two great design careers? Do I wax glowingly about the oft-touted plastic wheels they gave Zolkin its hype. Do I talk about how this game is still in my top 10 after five years of plays? Do I describe the use of the beautiful blue plastic skull as art and component, which is used as the pinnacle of resources in the game, while in real life, the use of crystal skulls by the Maya has been proven a hoax? And how this is so upsetting because, like many European designer publishers, it is symptomatic of a design laziness where cultural tropes are relied upon 
instead of seeking out experts in the culture for consultation. Do I tell the story of how the expansion, Tribes and Prophecies, with its asymmetric player powers and end-of-quarter scoring challenges, takes Zulkin from great to superstar? No, because fundamentally Zulkin is a story about time. The game is loosely set in the Maya and Aztec civilizations and is based on an abstraction of the Mayan calendar into one large gear that turns five other gears over the course of the game 26 times. The smaller side gears have spots to place your workers with action spaces printed around the wheels, which get more lucrative the longer a worker rotates. Each turn of the gear is a round, and each round you will either place some workers or you will pick up some workers. You will not do both. Workers are placed into the lowest available space, paying exponentially larger amounts of corn the more you place, and often paying even more corn if the lowest available space is further up the wheel. When you pick workers up, you may activate the aligned action associated with the worker's location. There are all kinds of ways, some easy, some difficult, to acquire or trade for a variety of resources. You can spend those resources to advance on an endlessly compelling tech tree, improving your actions, building buildings or monuments that help you acquire resources more efficiently, or score points in interesting ways. You can use them to do whatever it is you do at Chichen Itza involving the aforementioned fake blue crystal skulls. And you can use resources to play an area-majority minigame to climb the three temple tracks. You must use corn to feed your workers at the change of every season. All these actions are interesting variants of other games you've already played. Now we are at the heart of the story. That big central gear keeps turning, moving your workers and the possibilities of the game along with them. You can clearly see the feeding days getting closer and closer. You can easily make out that you have only so much time to score some points during the next temple scoring. This clarity gives a very complex game a certain accessibility as well as a stressful rhythm. Do your workers have enough time to arrive at the actions you need? Do you have time to untangle the order of operations so you can buy that monument you need? You could design this game without the gears, but if you did, Zolkin would lose its heartbeat, the pulsing, never-ending march of the gears which puts time at the top of mind and makes it the most important resource in the game. This makes Zolkin a game with planning, and while you could devise a strategy and play off the cuff, after each play you will wish that you planned better. This will keep you coming back for more. Finally, and most importantly, the pushing and pulling of workers, the turning of the gears, gives this game a rhythm. There are few better gaming experiences than the flow state you arrive at when your plan plays itself out over time in ways that you didn't see coming. And that is it. The story of Zolkin, a game with a million stories to tell, if you only give it the time. As always, if you want to contact me, you can find me at BGG as Cat Library or on Twitter as Kybrarian. Thanks for listening. Hello, 5 by listeners. Thanks for sticking around. As part of our commitment to growing a welcoming and inclusive space in the tabletop gaming hobby, we've teamed up with our Inside Voices Network friends to create a media fellowship with the goal of mentoring and assisting new voices in the community. Do you have an idea for media that contributes in a positive way to gaming? Then consider applying. More information can be found on our network site or by going to bit.ly slash ivfnews. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the 5 by If you'd like to follow us, please do on Twitter at 5 by Games. 
Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5bygames. Join our BGG Guild at number 2810. Listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Or just follow all the links you can find on 5bygames.com. The 5 By is a member of the Inside Voices Network. Find out more at insidevoicesnetwork.com.